Hello and welcome to Have Travel, Will Travel, a bi-monthly podcast where we sit down for a virtual fireside chat with archaeologists, anthropologists, and historians about their studies, experiences, and whatever interesting topic comes to mind. I'm Bridget, host and auditor of the Archaeology Society here at NUIG. For this episode, I had the absolute pleasure of chatting with Dr. Anna Marie Prentice, an archaeologist from Montana who's been excavating in Bridge River, British Columbia, about her work there and her experience working alongside the descendant community. So sit back wherever you might be tuning in and enjoy. I'm here with Dr. Anna Marie Prentice, who has graciously offered to talk to us today about her work. Um, and we're super excited. I'm really excited because I've just been reading a little bit of like your biography and some of the things that you've done. And it just, I find it really interesting. So I'm excited to hear what you have to say. Um, so I'll turn it over to you if you just want to kind of tell us a little bit about yourself and about what you study. Okay. Well, I'm Anna Prentice. Um, I'm a Regents Professor of Anthropology at the University of Montana. Uh, I'm an archaeologist and my research is focused on uh, the study of what we call complex fisher hunter gatherers and uh, the rise of villages and social, economic, political, and demographic change in, in those villages. Um, uh, I am also interested in evolutionary theory and using phylogenetic approaches to understanding long-term history. Um, in terms of field research, most of my work in the last 20 years has been focused on uh, a particular village in interior British Columbia called the Bridge River Site. And I work with a First Nation group called Hoisten, or the Bridge River Indian Band. And we study uh, the, the long-term history of this house pit village. So there's kind of a, a broad introduction to Yeah, me. no, that's, that's really neat. I think um, one thing that particularly sparked my interest when I was kind of looking through your stuff is um, you working with the First Nations, that's something that, while we don't necessarily have in Ireland, uh, we've kind of talked about it a little bit in some of our classes. Uh, but we'll, we'll, we'll get to that a little later. I don't want to jump the gun too much. Um, so you mentioned you, you look a lot into like the fisher, hunter, gatherer societies. Um, might be a bit self-explanatory what the name is, but could you kind of tell us a little bit more about what fisher hunter gatherer society sure. versus like a, just hunter gatherer society because that's right. usually the term that we use right well increasingly we've been making a distinction between fisher hunter gatherers and just straight hunter gatherers mainly on the basis of folks who uh, are reliant for a large proportion of their diet on uh, marine resources and, th and that could be anadromous fish like salmon which is the case with the folks I work with, or folks who live on the coast who uh, have a broader diet based on fishing. Uh, the, these, uh, these societies are, I suppose they're probably similar to those of the uh, late Mesolithic coastal Northern Europe. Uh, yeah, probably. I know we've, they've done, um, at least like when we would be learning about the Mesolithic societies here, um fishing was a big part of their of their society and of their diet um 
so that we probably could call them fisher hunter-gatherers rather than just straight up hunter-gatherers because they they mostly lived along the coast and they a lot mm -hmm. of the settlements that we found are well now they're underwater because the sea has risen since the mesolithic but they would have been right on the coastline right um and one thing that makes these folks different given this intense reliance on on fishing is it's also very storage oriented uh, with the with the middle fraser canyon folks you know the salmon come in july and they're done by early september and uh and they they have to put up enough stored fish along with some other resources to get by from basically november to march uh, when it's cold and everything's frozen wow that's i was trying to count those so july august september that's well, the way the way they're sorry yeah no i was just gonna say that's really only like three months to try to collect enough food to get you right. through the winter well it's a complex warm season cycle where fishing starts in july with the with the uh actually no not there's fishing that starts actually in May, but that's just the odd, really big king salmon coming up the river. The really intense fishing, which is, which is, which is for the sockeye salmon, starts in mid-July and uh, into August. And that's what they really rely on, is the July-August fishing. Okay. But then what they'll do is they'll dry all the fish because it's really hot there in the summer, cold in the winter and hot in the summer, and, uh, and then store that away and then go up into the mountains, deer hunting and root gathering and trout fishing and doing a whole bunch of other things between September and November. And then by about, by about late November, it's snow and cold and they're moving back into the winter villages and making use of all that salmon they'd stored away as well as everything they'd gathered in the fall uh, after salmon season ended, which would be dried deer and uh, elk or wapiti. Uh, bark, moss, dried trout, uh, um, berries, a whole bunch of things. <laughs> that is a, that's a really complex just dietary system where there's just all this, all these little bits and pieces coming in to, to help get them through. Um, Absolutely. And the, what, what's really interesting is their system of storage, where a lot of the foods would be saved in pits or in raised buildings uh, away from the village. And these pits would be really deep. They might be a couple of meters deep. And uh, then just sealed in vegetation and, and earth. And then uh, so that they remain, everything remains dry. And, and then in the winter, frozen. And so uh, if they've got a lot of food store, that means they've got these storage pits scattered around on the landscape that they then hit in the winter and bring it into the village and put it in storage pits in the houses. Oh, wow. Yeah. That is really, so really neat. Frozen goods from these field sites to the village sites to for short-term storage and consumption. Yeah. Now, um, the, the concept of storage, especially like before things like refrigeration, has always fascinated me because it's always just something, it's so interesting to think about, um, you know, how people, would have stored food before refrigerators. Now, why might they have these storage um, pits and places outside of the village instead of in it or near it? 
Well, they did, they did both. There would be some outdoor storage in and around the houses. We, we see those, um, but a lot were away from the village. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One, one is uh, just protection from raiding. If uh, ah. the village got raided for the purpose of stealing food mostly, uh, then there wouldn't be much to take if it was scattered about in secret places Okay. The fishing sites and the hunting sites and elsewhere, root gathering places, uh, it'd be harder to take. Another reason would be is if you had just a crisis of some kind and you lost it here, you've got backup over there. Okay. Yeah. And that so makes all sense of this is it's constant sort of risk management when your 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 winter survival is predicated on those stored food items. Yeah, that's really I guess sophisticated um, yeah. <laughs> which I, I, I don't like using that word to talk about ancient peoples because you know there's always this thought of ancient peoples being somewhat primitive compared to modern but then you start really looking at it and it turns out that they had this whole system to make sure that they could have enough food in case they got attacked in case something happened to one storage bit I mean, it's just, it's fascinating that they yeah. put that much thought into it. Absolutely. Huh. Well, I haven't even talked about the spring system where they uh, would come out of the, the winter houses in early March, sometime around there, late February. And, uh, and then everything was geared towards basically people being real hungry, just feed immediate, getting some food, fresh food in March, April. But then they would be in, in sort of up back up into the intermediate elevations for deer hunting and root gathering, and a lot of that food would be brought down to the fishing camps for, for storage and consumption while they were fishing in July, so with the fishing going towards the winter survival. So everything is segmented. Spring yeah. hunting and gathering oriented towards summer consumption, and then summer fishing, hunting, gathering, and fall hunting, gathering oriented towards winter survival. Wow, they really had just a whole system for getting all this figured out, getting everything squared away, and that is so cool. It kind of makes me wonder if the Mesolithic people here had something similar. I'm not too familiar with with Britain, but at least like in Ireland, um, we have a problem with there's really not a lot of Mesolithic um, evidence available because it's all underwater. <laughs> Because right. at the time of the Mesolithic, the interior of Ireland was so thickly forested, we don't have a whole lot of activity there. So everybody was kind of on the coasts. Then the water started coming up. They started moving in. So all of our stuff is underwater. So it'd be fantastic to see if we could take a look at that and see what kind of systems they had in place for, for this kind of survival. Sure. Well, so you cool. also have, you have this wonderful Neolithic record as well. We do. <laughs> and, and, this, and the village issues and storage issues in the Neolithic are also very similar to these village-based fisher hunter-gatherers in, in northwestern North America. Yeah. So for some of these, some of these villages, um, so it sounds like from the fact that they are keeping their food kind of stored in these different places in case if the village gets attacked and gets raided of all their food, um, did they build their villages to have any kind of defensive capabilities or were they kind of too temporary to do too much with that? Or like, how were the villages kind of set up? 
Okay, that's a good question. Um, we know from the historical record that sometimes villages were fortified, but, but we've never found any evidence archeologically. And some of these villages are enormous. The, uh, the Bridge River site where I work has 80 houses, wow. and many of which are, well, they're all bigger than 10 meters in diameter, and many are 15 to 20 meters in diameter. Um, many of these houses are, are very long lived, so uh, not just a single generation. The, the house where I've been working, actually on one house <laughs> since 2012, has 17 generational floors. Wow. And so for, for a period, of, for 15 of those floors was consecutive occupation, about 24 years each. So about 350 years uh, was continuous rebuilding and reoccupation, generation after generation, building up floor after floor after floor. So uh, uh, these are long-lived places. It's almost like a Middle Eastern tell. There's so much cultural yeah. material built up um, in, within and between all these houses. Um, there's at least three meters of just continuously built up cultural material there. Um, anyway, so uh, the issue of defense. Uh, so we haven't found uh, walls. We haven't found fortifications. But, but there's a couple of things that, that sort of stand out. First of all, these villages are on these flat promontories, basically on um, terraces in these steep canyons. Okay. And so Basically, where, wherever there's a, a good, goodly flat place, there's a village. Fair enough. <laughs> what I call a, a vertical landscape. <laughs> Fair enough. I actually, I looked everywhere. up. Sorry, I looked up Bridge River just on Google Maps, and I was kind of just huh? exploring around the area, and it's it's quite hilly. <laughs> yeah, it is, and so uh, these big villages. Would, because there'd be so many people living in these places, that would kind of be their defense right there. That they might have hundreds to even over a thousand or more people living in one of these villages. Wow. Yeah, and uh, and that would be in and of itself some sense of protection, just having a lot of people. But then there's a fascinating debate between the elders of the contemporary native people. When we, we did, my colleague Ian Kite and I put out a book called People of the Middle Fraser Canyon back in 2012. And we, and is, part of doing the book was using, working with an artist to recreate what it might've looked like in those villages. And we worked with some elders um, to sort of flesh out uh, things that we couldn't see in the archeological record. And one of the questions that we, we had was, well, did, were the villages kind of hidden in the trees or did they make sure the trees were cut back? so that you could see who's coming. Yeah. And one elder told us, oh, they always cut it back. And the other elder said, no, 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 they always hid in, hid in the trees. Yeah. <laughs> so oh, in, in, our, in, our, in our drawings in the book, we put an intermediate, which is probably wrong on either count, but we didn't know what else to do. <laughs> oh gosh, I can just imagine that. <laughs> oh, wow. But they, they'll tell, they tell us that there are lookout sites Mm -hmm. in, on in the canyons up above the villages where people could would have temporary shelters and in times where they were concerned about raids they would have lookouts posted so they could see up and down the valleys yeah okay 
that's really interesting. Because uh, again, I'm just kind of comparing it to what I what I know here of Ireland, and that we have quite a long history of defensive sites. Um, although for a large part of Irish history, because they were very much based in in cattle, um, their defense was you could just round up the cows and disappear into the bog, and the English couldn't get you. Um, but we do have quite a few defensive sites because, and they tend to be quite large because with the idea being you could stick your cattle in there and protect them from wolves or other animals or other people coming in to try to steal it. Um, so it's, it's interesting to see these kind of different answers to how to protect yourself from, mm -hmm. from enemies. Now, was there a lot of conflict in this area or was it kind of, um, don't want to necessarily say peaceful, but um, like, what was the nature of conflict yeah. for this period? Well, it's it's really interesting. In the middle Fraser Canyon, uh, it, the the fishery in the Fraser River there is even today is the best salmon fishery in Interior British Columbia. There, it just produces literally millions of fish um, in in a, in a real in a good year, and so. Uh, the the people the, so the people aggregated there in large numbers, uh, and there was not a lot of payoff for them in waging war yeah. with the neighbors, even though they joke about that now. Uh, <laughs> uh, but r really, their their the, their payoff was in in exchange in trade, because the Middle Fraser dried salmon was so good; it still is so good. If you like that kind of thing. Um, uh, that even the folks on the coast who had tons of smoked fish would trade to get the mid-Fraser wind-dried salmon. And then uh, they also had, beyond the salmon, they had kind of a, the, uh, a really great access, particularly in the Bridge River Valley, to nephrite jade and soapstone uh -huh. or steatite. And so they, they were a major producer of nephrite jade adzes for woodworking and steatite bowls and beads and pendants. And so uh, between the salmon and the stone resources, uh, they, 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 were, they were able to sort of monopolize the trade in certain things. Also, they, uh, they produced weavings from goat hair, wild uh, uh, mountain goat hair and dog hair. Interesting. And that was a trade item too. And so we almost never see any indicators of, of violence in the record uh, of these villages. Now, the, now historically, there was a period in and around the early fur trade, the early 19th century, where everything got destabilized for a while, to some degree amongst the Statlium or the folks of the Mid-Fraser and their neighbors, the, the in the Kapamuk people or Thompson people. Uh, and there's a lot of violence for a few decades, but uh, it doesn't look like that was the norm earlier in okay. earlier times. Ah, that's interesting. I'm just, I looked up a picture of uh, nephrite jade here. It's very pretty. <laughs> it's gorgeous. Very nice green to it. Yeah, yeah well, and it's so tough. Uh, it work, it, if, you, if you need a stone tool to do woodworking, that's kind of what you want. Uh, of course, it would take a long time to make one of those things. Yeah. Uh, there, there was a master's thesis done at, at Simon Fraser University where the graduate student made 
an ads for his thesis, among other things he did oh, for his wow. thesis. And it took him a hundred hours of watching football on TV to grind this thing out. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> wow. So do they end up, do they, um, do they end up doing any polishing on these finished mm -hmm. products? Okay. Yeah, highly polished. Wow. Yeah. You would, you would saw it loose from a block. And you would just have to grind it into shape and then polish it. Yeah. Okay. Oh, I bet that would make a very nice, very nice optic. Anything that's made of. I do love me some good stones. <laughs> I've got one. Here's a, uh, this is a miniature of one of these. Oh, wow. Yeah. That is gorgeous. Yeah. Um, uh, oh god here's a here's a rough out oh, let's see there we go so it's been sawed on one side here mm -hmm. and then there you can see the lovely jade and then yeah. there's the rough exterior wow yeah that is so cool yeah i know that's interesting because um so we found a couple, I think it's mostly been in the UK, where we found these jadeite axe heads that have been traced all the way to the Alps. Um, right. and yep, it seems, I've read about those. Yeah, really, really cool. And uh, the lady who's done a lot of work on it, Alison Sheridan, she came and talked to the society about four years ago. And super, super cool. Um, I know Allison. Oh, do you? Yes. <laughs> she's a lovely lady. Yes. And um, she's talking about how they were such important items because they traveled so far and they were just such high quality, such, you know, to get some of the, the, the polished uh, state to them. It would obviously it would take ages and ages just to get to that. And I guess they didn't have football to watch to try to keep them occupied <laughs> as they were making it. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah. So I probably should have started with this, but I just got really excited and got right into it. Um, so what time period are you, are you looking at? Um, uh, the, the time period that we, we have been mostly focused on is the period in the interior where you start to see these large villages and that has just under 2000 years ago. So uh, the big villages in the mid Fraser area, the Bridge River site, the Keatley Creek site, the Bell site and a few others, all date, their most intense occupations are between about a thousand years ago and about 16 to 1800 years ago. Okay, so we're, and, um, yeah, so we're talking to about the turnover from BC to AD, if I'm Just doing my math correctly. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So in, in 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 calendar terms, the Bridge River site was initiated at about 200 AD. Okay. And then uh, it grew steadily. It, it hit peak size at about 800 to to 700 to 800 AD, mm -hmm. and then kind of then was abandoned, more or less, at about a thousand. And then repopulated in the final, in the last 500 years. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Is there any particular reason why it kind of went through that pause of population? Yeah. Uh, it, it coincides actually with the medieval climatic anomaly. Ah. And, uh, 
okay. which was great if you're a Viking wanting to be a farmer <laughs> in Greenland. Yeah. And it was lousy if you were a salmon fisher person because oh, yeah. the, uh, the uh, warmer conditions meant high sea surface temperatures, which is not so great for, for, for uh, small fish, which feeds salmon. It's also not so great for forest health. And if your forest is, is having fires and eroding into the creeks, that means cloudy water, which is no good for salmon mm. spawning. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, the last warming period was not very good for, uh, for these villages. And then if, if your salmon runs aren't very good, then you overeat your deer and your small your small game, and maybe you overharvest your root resources, and so that's a problem too. And so that seemed to have happened throughout the villages at around beginning probably around 1,200 years ago, and uh, and then the full force, I mean the full-on abandonment of the big villages at about a thousand years ago. Now the people still were there. They seemed to have scattered. They're, they're, they probably were reduced in numbers, but uh, we're, we're doing a new study of the radiocarbon record right now, and it, and it kind of the modeling kind of shows that uh, there was a low population still there throughout yeah. the time between a thousand and five hundred years ago, before the villages sort of perked up again and got big again. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting to to hear just how interconnected everything is. You know, something that was great for the Vikings um, had such a devastating effect for the people here. And not only that, but just because we've talked about like you know the, the medieval warming event, um, but it's it's fascinating. I keep saying that, but it's just it really is just to hear how something as small as you know if the forests are not doing so well and they're eroding you know it's eroding into the water and it's causing the water quality to go down and now your salmon is being affected and just all these tiny little things that are all affecting each other and then it results in that these people are you know population is dropping off maybe they're dispersing and then we see it in the archaeological record absolutely and you know the little ice age came came you know in the last five six hundred years up to about 150 years ago and those cold uh wet summers were terrible if you're farming in northern europe yes and uh <laughs> they were quite good for salmon <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh we can't just have a win-win scenario that's so funny because it, again it's something else that we've talked about where it caused one of many famines in ireland um I, everybody likes to talk about the Great Famine of 45, um, but Ireland has basically been in a constant state of famine <laughs> for the past 2,000 years or so. Um, so, but it's interesting to hear that while it, it kind of sucked for Northern Europe, it was great for everybody over in British Columbia. <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, that's cool. That's also, it's, it's interesting to hear that because, um, like in our archaeology classes, even our history classes, really in the college, uh, we tend to kind of focus on Ireland and maybe a bit of the continent, a little bit of Britain as well. Um, we don't get a whole lot of, well, your side of the pond. Sure. Um, yeah, although uh, as you could probably tell by my accent, I am not Irish myself. Um, I just ended up over there. And so I've kind of gotten a little bit of each world, but I uh -huh. want to kind of help 
give our members a bit of a perspective on things that were going on over in the Americas. And so this is this is really neat to hear, especially since, you know, it's kind of mentioning things that we've hit in our classes and go, oh, that's what's going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's really Great. cool. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so these ancient peoples who, li who were living in, in this area, um, are they the ancestors to the, um, the Bridge River people who are there now? Mm -hmm. okay. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, the, the people now uh, are Salish speakers. They, uh, the, the indigenous Mid-Fraser folks are called Statlium. And they're broken up into multiple bands. And Hoisten is the Bridge River Indian band, the one I, that are direct descendants of the Bridge River archaeological site. Okay. Yeah. That's cool um, that there's such a the, long continuation. And there is, yeah. I mean, there is this few hundred years, around a thousand years ago to, to about 500 years ago, where the record is kind of hard to follow. But what's really interesting is if you look at the material culture, terms of the styles of tools and the raw materials and the way houses are built and what's going on after 500 years ago it's exactly the same um, in the the in the, the our project at house bit 54 at bridge river the 17 floor house uh, shows that really well the final floor was actually late fur trade period it was literally mid 19th century wow yeah we were we were able to show that they actually had trade beads made in Venice in 1851. Wow. And then they made it to the floor of this house. And so assuming it took at least a year for the bead yeah. to get all the way from Venice to interior British Columbia, then maybe that house was in use minimally in 1852 AD. And uh, then we know it went out of use in 1858 because that's when the gold rush happened and 10,000 gold miners flooded the area and drove everybody out of living in pit houses. Yeah. It was sort of a dark period. And, uh, but anyway, so we were able to compare this, this fur trade floor that had 12,000 lithic artifacts on it with the thousand year earlier floors and the styles of, of arrow points and scrapers and uh, woodworking tools, uh, bone tools, bone awls, everything was exactly was identical. Wow, that yeah. is just fantastic. Yeah, so it's very, very clear that it's the same people. They dispersed a bit on the landscape for a few hundred years, didn't live in the aggregated villages while the fisheries were sketchy. And then when the fishing got better in the little ice age, yeah. uh, they packed back in and that's where they lived. And that's where they were when the first Europeans showed up in, in British Columbia. Wow, that's such a neat uh, kind of look into how they've, you know, just the story of the landscape, the story of the people there, and just how they've managed to survive for thousands of years through, mm -hmm. you know, hardship and whatever, and we're able to see that into all these layers. It's really cool just to think of those trading beads that came all the way from Venice and to just kind mm -hmm. of imagine the journey they would have gone through to go from Venice to this, you know, to this little house here. Right. Well, what, what's really interesting is that particular kind of bead. It's, it's, a, it's a white, green, and red striped bead. And uh, most of those beads ended up in Africa. 
Interesting. Yeah. And, uh, but apparently a small number of them made their way into the Americas and yeah. all the way to the war of House Bid 54 at Bridge River. That is really neat. It kind of, you know, it kind of makes me wonder what kind of uh, trading connections they would have had, if not directly with Europeans, then maybe with some other people who then connected with the with the Europeans who then brought it back. Or there, there were fur trade posts about about a hundred kilometers to the. There's one to the east, and another about about sixty seventy kilometers to the south. Okay. And uh, yeah. And so, uh, and given that uh, salmon was always in demand, but that by the 1850s, uh, the deer, I mean, the, uh, the beaver trade had collapsed. They basically hunted out the, most of the beaver. And so deer hides were the big thing yeah. in the 1840s and 1850s before gold became the big thing. And so we have evidence that it, in, uh, at Bridge River from House Pit 54, that they had kind of a deer product, a hide factory in the house, because we found huh. uh, in just one floor, there were 250 hide scrape, big hide scrapers. Wow. And 135 arrow points. Wow. And probably somewhere five to 8,000 pieces of burnt rock in a midden in the middle of the floor, which was used to boil water for grease extraction, which was used to tan the hides. There's quite a lot of activity going on in just this one house. So this one house probably had two <laughs> families uh, raising their kids and, you know, caring for their elders, but also very engaged in production of goods for exchange. We also found three spindle whorls for uh, making yarn. Which oh. supported this idea that they were making blankets for trade yeah. out of dog hair and goat hair. Wow. That's really cool. So how big how big is this house? This house is 13 meters in diameter. Okay, so it's a round house. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So size. Well, well, earlier in its lifespan, it for a while for about seven floors, it was a rectangle before it doubled in size. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and why why might they have changed from using a rectangle to a roundhouse structure? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think it's a population issue because at, a, at around 1300 years ago, there was this boom in population. So uh, there, I think there, there was a real boom in salmon productivity. It kind of correlates with an indi some indicators from the coast that marine productivity temporarily spiked. That meant that, that the fishery was really good in the mid-Fraser, and so there was kind of a salmon rush where people packed into these villages, and uh, they'd already been there, but the num just the numbers really skyrocketed. And so not only does the village grow really fast in terms of numbers of houses, but the one house that we've studied in, in intense detail doubled in size right at that same, same time. Wow. That's, that's just so cool to think about. <laughs> Yeah, so when the Europeans came, now because uh, my knowledge of history in this area is hazy at best, um, but was it was it the French who first came to this area? Or was it the English? It was English. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the, the first person to uh, explore the Middle Fraser Canyon 
it was it was in 1808 when Simon Fraser ah. uh, <laughs> made the famous run down the Fraser River and documented the, the native people. Of course, the native people at that point already knew of, of, of Europeans because they'd been visiting the coast for a while. Yeah, that makes sense. And so it wasn't a shock to see uh, Europeans coming through. Uh, but they were, but Simon Fraser's, and he was a Scotsman, uh, working for the Northwest Company, was the first one to, to, to run through the area. Okay. Yeah, it, it occurred to me it, almost immediately after I asked the question that we're talking about British Columbia, not like Quebec. Right, <laughs> I was thinking right. that, could have answered it. But but again, my, my knowledge of this area is very, very hazy. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> yeah, so, um, so yeah, that's, that, that's interesting. So, um, trying to think, I'm looking at your... I, I keep looking at the map here, just kind of trying to orient myself of where it is. Mm -hmm. um, so then at the time of kind of like the the fur trade was going on and then later it's collapsed. So all this area was under control of the uh, the British. More or less, yeah. Okay, yeah. Okay, that's interesting. Oh, I see it, okay. I just zoomed out a little bit. Okay, so you're over by Vancouver. Uh, my knowledge uh -huh. of geography of Canada is yeah, <laughs> we're we're the, the the area where I where I work is around Lillooet, British Columbia. Okay. If you find Lillooet, uh, you'll you'll see the sort of the S-shaped curve in the river. Ah, uh, yeah. And the Bridge River's branching off from there, just north of Lillooet. So Lillooet's about four hours by vehicle northeast of Vancouver. Oh wow. I always forget just how big Canada is until I see a map or something. And I go, whew. <laughs> Especially since I've been in Ireland for like the past four years, and it's, it's quite small. <laughs> yeah, right. Four years, and I would, or sorry, four four hours, and I would be in the ocean <laughs> if I were driving. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh. So this is all just a. It's a fascinating study that you have going on here, and I could probably talk to you for hours on end about it because I just find it really really cool um, but as I kind of mentioned before uh, really interested to hear about your work with the um, Bridge River Indian Band uh -huh. I went and I, I spent most of yesterday I was looking at the different the, kind of the different names they go by and I was looking at I was just had like a little phonology chart of the language and I went oh dear <laughs> I can't can't pronounce any of that so I am just well. If you weren't if you weren't raised speaking Salish, there's a lot of sounds you just can't make. I can't make. Uh, they had some uh, had some fascinating sounds that I just liked hearing, but I'm like, um, I'm I can str I struggle with English most days. <laughs> I can't handle anything <laughs> else. So, um, so how did you come in contact with with them? Did you go into your project um, with the idea that you wanted to work with them, or did that kind of come later? Well, uh, how it worked out was I, I did graduate school at Simon Fraser University in British Columbia. And, uh, and I was part of one of my professor's projects at the Keatley Creek site. So I was part of Brian Hayden's team at Keatley. And Brian was working with um, the Squilix people who are part of the Statlium. And, uh, and so I, I became familiar with the area, and I got to know a couple of the, the Squilix people. 
uh, including their, their recently passed away uh, senior elder. And, um, and so in, in uh, about 1998, I, I was here at Montana and uh, wanted to start a, a new project. And so the first place I worked was actually back at Keatley Creek, which is a village about 10 kilometers from the Bridge River site. And we work with the Squilic Band and uh, for a few years, and we realized that, uh, that we really needed to work at another village and test some of the ideas that we had coming out of the other one because um, and, and do some things a different way from the very start. And so uh, I met with uh, the Hoisten folks, the Bridge River folks in, in 2002 and talked to them about would, would they be interested in, in collaborating in a partnership on a long-term project at the Bridge River site. And they were very enthusiastic. And so, uh, so for ever since then, so now we have a 17 year running project uh, with those guys. And, uh, and it's been a great relationship. We have, we've got a, some old friendships now and uh, the way we work is, uh, um, we, we collectively come up with ideas of things we want to study. Uh, uh, if, I, if I have a sort of a big idea, the first thing I do is I'll, I'll go to uh, uh, the leadership with the, in the band and, uh, and say, hey, I have this idea, something we could do, and this is what we would learn from it. And, uh, and then they'll talk about it and, uh, and decide if they think it's a good idea too. And I won't do anything. Uh, in, unless they think it's a super good idea. Okay. And so that's kind of how, how we work. And then um, the way we've done the field work is I've done all the fundraising. All our work has been funded by the National Science Foundation, the National Endowment for the Humanities, and the Wintergren Foundation for Anthropological Research, mostly NSF and NEH. Um, and so we, I bring the, this grant money and, and these crews and, and, and all this research search um, there. Uh, the band has had some grant money over, over the years sometimes to hire band members to dig with us when we've done excavations. Okay. And so in between 2012 and 2014 we had the band had hired membership as part of the excavation crews which was great. Yeah. Uh, it's just great great fun to have those guys out they're working with us and they're really knowledgeable about the area and uh, yeah. and our our students learn a lot from them and they've learned something from us about you know the basics of archaeology yeah and uh, and so uh, that that's been a really really great thing and then when it comes to the uh, sort of the writing and the publication process um, uh, I tend to, to again run drafts of papers uh, or I'll run ideas about here's how I want to go in terms of the, how we pursue the research and uh, get their input and um, and then uh, any any draft materials go I'll send to them before it well before it gets published so that we can uh, make sure that we're taking into account traditional knowledge and their perspectives as well. Um, I'm trying to do more of that right now. I've I've uh, one thing that, that that's not happened very much is having co-authors with the band to, to, to 
or folks from the band to co-author works with us. Mm -hmm. But uh, I'm working with a, a young, just graduate from college uh, in anthropology from Squilux. And uh, her, her name's Alicia Edwards. And so Alicia and I have been collaborating on various projects. So for example, we, we wrote a paper on the, the burnt roof tradition in the mid Fraser. It's a lot like the burnt, root, burnt house tradition in the early Neolithic of Greece in Southeastern Europe. Interesting. Yeah. And uh, so in the mid Fraser, you get every house you excavate, the roof is collapsed and burnt. Hmm. Uh, it's sitting on top of the floor or floors. And, uh, and in House Pit 54, there are actually seven roofs. And, uh, and in, the, in the 15 floor sequence that predates 1100 years ago, there are five roofs. And uh, the final major collapsed roof, and then, but also bits, four other roofs, but they aren't complete roofs, they're just partial burnt roofs. Hmm. So what Alicia and I did was we, we asked questions to her contacts about ash-related rituals. And, uh, and there's a very vibrant tradition of using ash today in, in native rituals, whether it's uh, smudging to purify or burning food and goods as offerings at the graveyard. Uh, and so we've had this weird situation with House Pit 54 where four of those deeply buried roofs are just are less than a quarter of the roof. And so what you get is basically an intact floor with all everything abandoned on the floor. And then this burnt roof sitting on just a part of it. And then the whole thing covered by another floor. And so why just a part, why just a partial burnt roof? Why not the whole yeah. thing? And so, and we also discovered that the, that the bones that were embedded into that burnt, those burnt roof are really highly burned. They're all white and calcified much more burnt than the bones on the floors. So there were literally bones sitting on that portion of that roof that burnt and allowed to collapse on that floor. Huh. So we argued that, that it was an example of renewal rituals, that, uh, that the house is being renewed and they're, they're burning up a part of the roof as a renewal ritual, letting that fall on the old floor and then just burying the whole thing with a new floor. Huh. Whereas the final roof is all full of burnt beams and the whole thing is covering the last floor and that was clearly a closing ritual that the life of the house had ended and they collapsed and burnt the whole roof not just a little piece of it because it wasn't going to be recycled oh. yeah and so today of course they don't burn their roofs down anymore yeah. <laughs> but they certainly do ash related rituals to do with uh sacred belief systems about uh purity and uh and in connections with the spirit world mm -hmm. etc okay that's that's such a neat little continuation of a tradition mm -hmm. you know that's kind of adapted into the modern sure. setting and you know i wouldn't have had that insight without working directly with the community yeah and it's been and it's just it's it's mutually informative the work we do and the work that they and the insight they provide. Yeah, I guess that's the that's a huge benefit of working with the um, the people whose history and heritage that you're sure, the, you're studying. The, the, the descended community. Yeah. Yeah, and how that's something. Um, 
so we have a in our archaeology course in our final year we have a class called public archaeology where mm -hmm. we kind of talk about community archaeology and some of the problems that archaeologists can run into where they're trying to look look at sites especially if there are still people like modern communities that have attachments to it and um i have a couple of professors who have done quite a few community archaeology projects in Ireland, um, particularly in association with like studying famine villages. And, you know, because there's still, although quite a few people left Ireland during the famine, one way or another, uh, it's how my family sure. ended up in the States, but uh -huh. there's still quite a few people in, who live in the area who have roots going back, you know, hundreds of years. And so they were working with, they working on surveying this one famine village and they um, went in and talked to the community that lived with it, li like lived around there to get some of that kind of input and to have them help out and to hear some of the stories that had been passed down from grandparents. And there's all these cool little nuggets of information that they find because they go and they talk to the people who've actually lived there. and They know the site. It's just, it's such a cool thing. It is so cool. Yeah. yeah. Are, are you familiar with Ian Kite's research project in Enish Shark and Enish Boffin? Yes. Yes, actually, we wanted, he was one guy we wanted to come and talk, have talked to us, but, you know, COVID happened. Okay. Maybe in the future. Either in the future, I'll see if I can get him on a call like this. There you go. Um, yeah. Yeah. I've been, I've actually, I've been to Inishbofen myself, and it is a gorgeous little island. Um, but I understand. I've never been there. I, I would love to visit sometime. Yeah. Oh, it's it's wonderful. And it's actually, I would prefer it over like the Aran Islands, which are just off the coast of Galway. Because um, they, it has the same kind of feel to it, but Inishbofin is much less commercialized. So it's a lot quieter and you miss a lot of just the, the crazy tourist crowds. Um, so it's absolutely gorgeous. But um, I was also thinking as you're kind of telling me about your you working with the um, Bridge River Indian Band. I just completely <laughs> blanked on their name for a second. Uh -huh. um, but how cool would it be to be helping on a project in a spot where your ancestors have been? And like Absolutely. to know like this is where your ancestors, you know, you're standing in the same spot that your great, however many time great, grandparents stood and that's just absolutely that is yeah. so neat <laughs> well one thing that we also try to do is make sure that we uh are aware of cultural protocols mm -hmm. where we work so one thing that happens every time i take a new crew to the mid fraser we have a ceremony with their uh spiritual leader in the community and okay. he smudges all of us and introduces us to the ancestors Oh, how neat. The ancestors are still there. Yeah. And, uh, and so they they want us to make sure that we're not a, a shock to the ancestors and vice versa. Yeah. So we, we're all smudged and introduced. We say our names and uh, and Carl then talks to the ancestors in, in their language. And so we do that. That's such a nice and, little uh, touch. It, it, it is. And uh, then we observe other protocols. If we find human remains, um, the the protocol is that we, we can describe, we can photograph and describe and draw them in the field and then, uh, uh, but then they get turned over to the leadership of the band to be dealt with with the appropriate pro cultural protocols. 
Okay. That was actually, yeah. it was going to be something that I wanted to ask about, because I know that's kind of been a, a bit of contention mm -hmm. between archaeologists and descendant communities and right. in, in many places, uh, not just in the Americas, but kind of all oh, over sure. the world. Yeah. Um, in that, what do you, you know, how to handle human remains in, in, a, in a respectful manner, because I know in the past yeah. that hasn't always been done. Right. Absolutely. And one, one, one way, one way that we're, we're kind of lucky is that the, the, the ancestors rarely buried their dead in the village. The, okay. the human remains that have been found tend to be away from the village, which is not where we work. Yeah. On the hillsides and terraces elsewhere. And, and so uh, it's very, very rare that we encounter human remains, mostly just shed teeth. Though so we did find a little piece of a cranium just loose on a floor. <laughs> my guess is some dog found it and dragged it into the house. <laughs> oh gosh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I can I can it distinctly imagine that happening. Just the other day, our my dog here found a half dead pigeon in the backyard and brought it in to show us. <laughs> like, nope. look at me, I'm a great hunter. And we're like, we know you didn't <laughs> catch that. <laughs> but yeah. But that's, you know, it's it's really, it's it's so good to hear that there's such a good relationship between you and the Senate community and that there's such a, it's such a two-way uh, relationship in terms of research and in terms of publishing things. And, you know, it just, especially since, you know, in our public archaeology class, uh, we tend to hear a lot of kind of horror stories almost uh some oh, of the sure. some yeah. of the some of the bad things that have happened and some of the bad blood between archaeologists and descendant communities across the world because i know a lot of times some archaeologists um can kind of come into a site like i'm the expert i'm going to tell you what to think and not really take into account the people there so it's it's sure. it's cool to hear that hear that kind mm. of side of things well, the Bridge River Band has given me a lot of leeway. <laughs> I don't, you know, I've just been up front. Here's some things I like to do, and they've tended to say, "Great, we'll all learn something from that too." So it's been been a great experience so far. Yeah. We have a brand new grant. We're expecting once COVID crisis ends, we have funding for two more years of field work. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and I guess, you know, it's it's got to be a benefit for everybody involved just to be able to kind of find out more about this site. And again, kind of like I, I mentioned before, just how cool it would be to be working on a, working on a site that your ancestors lived in. Um, it'd be great to learn about what your ancestors were doing there. Um, although I'm sure they have, you know, stories that have been passed down and traditions about what their ancestors got up to and kind of the the land as well. Absolutely. Yeah. That was just that was super neat. Um, I'm trying to think. I had a nice little list of questions. I was like, just in case I kind of needed to figure out how to guide the conversation, but it was just, I was, just got really excited. <laughs> got really into yeah. everything that you were saying. Um, I can't think of anything else that I want to try to ask you, although honestly, I could just hear you talk about this for hours. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's such a neat thing and it's so different yeah. from, um, you know, what I've learned in my archaeology classes. And really, sorry, sorry, continue. 
I was going to say one of the new things that were one of the advantages of of this long floor sequence at HouseBit 54 is we're able to actually look in detail at sort of transmission reproduction of household traditions across generations. Ah. Yeah, and so uh, you know we've published on the the development of so, social change, particularly inequality. And we published this new paper in the Journal of Anthropological Archaeology on the subsistence history and as related to population variation. But the new thing that we've been we're working on is 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 cultural transmission between floors. Mm -hmm. So I've got a brand new paper that's just getting ready to go into review right now, where we show that there's this process of gradual change in the way people position their cooking features and their storage features from floor to floor to floor to floor. Uh, and it looks like, in, in it, we, we asked the question, it could, or posed the, the alternative hypotheses that, okay, one scenario is the house was just a shelter and families came willy-nilly, didn't really pass on traditions from generation to generation. It's just they sort of reinvented themselves each time versus this idea that it, the house was a capital H house in the Levi Straussian sense, uh, person morale, and uh, and that all these traditions were 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 passed on, inherited across multiple generations. And if that was the case, we should see only very gradual change from floor to floor. And as it turns out, that's exactly what we see. Okay. There's a steady pattern of innovations and change, but a lot of traditions continued across 50, well, actually we looked at a dozen of the 15 floors, so across a dozen generations, so. Wow. Yeah. And might that have um, been like, the, oh, I guess the same family? Like just did the house kind of getting passed through from parent to yeah. child? Yeah, no, no, the one thing we, we haven't sorted out yet, clearly they're passing on traditions. Yeah. But what we don't know is to what degree outsiders are coming in and living with the family mm. you know if they have a demographic crisis let's say they lost somebody or lost a family and they need new producers in the house yeah. did they attract another family into the house from another house or another village or what and that's the thing we're kind of scratching our heads and trying <laughs> to figure out how do you tease that out of the archaeological record <laughs> that's always the question <laughs> Right, so we're working on that. <laughs> we now know okay. there is this inherited tradition across a dozen generations. Mm -hmm. And uh, now we have to sort of dig into it a little deeper and see if we can sort out the question of interfamily variability yeah. within floors and between floors. And it's the rare archaeological context where you can actually do that across a dozen generations. Yeah, I guess it's uh, it helps that you just have so many distinct floors that you can just kind of look through. Uh, that is fantastic. <laughs> all right, yeah, well, I think that's all the questions I can think to ask of you. Okay. Um, again, just a fascinating, fascinating subject. And no doubt there's so much that could be said about it. Um, but I don't want <laughs> I wouldn't, I don't want to keep you for hours. <laughs> Well, it's lovely. It's very lovely talking to you. And I'm glad. Yeah. Uh, thank you for inviting me to uh, uh, to do this. And I hope it's informative to your student colleagues. Yeah, no, I think they'll I think they'll really enjoy it. Because like I said, this is just something that 
we would never get in any of our classes because it's just it's so far out of the um, our area of study, you know. I and really a lot of um, a lot of Irish students here just don't really don't know a whole lot about the the history of the prehistory of the Americas, and I even don't know a whole lot about that. And I'm American, but that's kind uh -huh. of sure. a very system. <laughs> so thank you so much for um, agreeing to talk to me. It's been fantastic. You're and welcome. If you, if you need me to send you any other resources, let me know. Yeah, the, I mean, maybe some pictures of those rocks because they're just really cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll see what uh, I have. <laughs> yeah, no, but again, okay, thank you well, so much. An, okay, you're very welcome. Have Travel, Will Travel is produced by the NUIG Archaeology Society. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listened. If you want to stay updated on the Society's activities, you can join our Facebook group, follow us on Instagram, or sign up for email updates at our blog, the links for which can be found in the show notes. If you're a student of NUIG, make sure to join the Society via your space. The Society would like to thank Dr. Prentice for taking the time to chat with us. We hope you enjoyed, and we'll catch you in the next episode.